Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today are international best-selling authors Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, and for the record, neither have brought along legal counsel that I'm aware of. You'll find their wildly <laughs> successful co-authored novels under their last names, Preston and Child, and I'm inc- incredibly grateful that they've made time to join me today. If you go to their website, you can read details about their lives and backgrounds, which are far too interesting and extensive to adequately sum up here. Suffice it to say that both writers have backgrounds in editing and professional literary education, and between the two of them, they seem to make up at least 2.5 Renaissance men. They've sold more than 15 million books in North America alone, and their works are translated into seven languages and sold all over the globe. Gentlemen, welcome to Writers on the Beat, and thank you for making time to join me today. Well, thank you, Gavin. So the latest book in your amazingly successful Pendergrass series Uh, released on New Year's Eve, called Verses for the Dead, in which the beloved special agent Pendergast is forced to work with a partner. Douglas, can you tell us about this novel and what readers can expect from it? Well, uh, our longtime FBI agent, um, AXL Pendergast, normally has worked alone. He's a bit of a rogue agent. He doesn't play by the rules. Um, We have FBI friends who say to us, well, Heck, when does he do all the paperwork? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, we have to do a lot of paperwork. Well, Pendergast doesn't do a lot of paperwork, and he also doesn't take a lot of perps to trial because they usually end up dead. Well, so, that's not a terrible thing for the fictional bad guy. Well, so in, in this case, the FBI uh, is trying to rein him in. So they've mm-hmm. assigned him a partner, a junior partner, Agent Cold Moon, who is sort of charged with, hey, you know, keep an eye on Pendergast, and if he starts going off the rails, tell us, warn us. And so this puts Cold Moon in a difficult position because, of course, you know, his first loyalty is to his partner, mm-hmm. or is his first loyalty to the supervisor who wants him to report back on Pendergast. So that's that's sort of the kind of dynamic between Pendergast and Cold Moon. Yeah, and that's a really, I'm sorry, say that's a really tough position for you guys to put Coldman in because it's, you know, I mean, it's is a career between or a choice between, you know, your, your partner and your career, but also um, you need to have partners to have a career in, in, in law enforcement. And that's a, a tough spot, a true rock and a hard place for him. It is, it is. Um, so, so they're both assigned to a very unusual case. Mm-hmm. Uh, a human heart is found on a grave in Miami. And, of course, right away the body is found that the human heart was taken from. But the heart was left on a grave with a note of condolence from the killer who styles himself Mr. Broken Hearts. And the, the grave is of a woman who committed suicide 11 years ago. And so this is how the case starts. And... Uh, <laughs> It gets complicated. Yeah, I just finished reading that. Uh, I guess about two days ago, and it's one of the one of the uh, really one of the better murder mysteries that I've read in a really long time. And it reminded me a lot of 
really some of the literary greats in this field. I mean, there's there's tones of Agatha Christie in this and the attention to detail, and it's almost like an homage to the entire genre. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. That's... No, thank you for writing it. Um, uh, I, I recently spoke with, with Ian Rankin uh, about John Rebus and his similarity to Hieronymus Bosch came up in the interview. Um, kind of along that same thread, Lincoln, how, how did you two name Pendergast? And if nothing else, um, he's at least got an incredibly unique name in common with those other uh, inspectors. Uh, Gavin, on advice of my attorney, I have no comment on that. Uh, until you get the light out of my eyes. <laughs> How about talk about sitting across the table from you? He's got me kind of worried. worried you know. um, in all seriousness, um, uh, you know, Pender, where the name Pendergast is very mysterious to us. Um, uh, normally, since we work together, we, we like to work our characters out in advance. I mean, Cold Moon, for example, um, Pendergast's partner in our latest book, we worked him out in great detail. Um, you know, where the, the fact he was Native American, what, what tribe he was from, um, you know, how he would most annoy Pendergast and, and, and yet ultimately, um, you know, uh, earn his respect. Um, how they would argue, what, what point would be, you know, with what peculiarities he would have, et cetera, et cetera. But with Pendergast, it's like he's praying fully formed onto the page. And um, he's been around with us since, since uh, the very first book we wrote, in, in which Doug began writing um, the opening chapters, which featured two New York City cops. Um, I think they were either both Irish, or one was Irish, one was Italian. And, and you know, I, I, I said to him, uh, Doug, can you please, um, chained one of these to so they're not quite so, so cliched. Sure. Um, I, I probably said it in a more, you know, uh, a kinder, more tactful way. You know, <laughs> no, he, he, he did not. He did not. It was very rude, as he usually is when he's giving advice. Yes. He doesn't take criticism well and tends to get very defensive. And uh, um, anyway. And and that was that was certainly the case this time because he immediately said, with very sarcastically, "Oh, like what? Like make one of them an albino from New Orleans?" And and I thought, well, you know, maybe that wasn't a bad idea. Um, yeah. And then and then he wrote Henry into the scene. He sashayed in. You know, he uh, he compared the blood spatter to uh you know various renaissance paintings uh you know and um and uh he made all sorts of droll remarks and then in the process of doing so pointed out all the things that the cops had missed and he right right away this was like you know this is our character you know this is who we'd like to be you know and who who, who wouldn't want to have a huge amount of money and have a chauffeur in rolls royce and <laughs> And whip out a, and a badge anytime somebody tries to get his way. Um, but that you you can see I've been dancing around your question now for about forty five minutes. And <laughs> and the fact is, I don't know unless Doug can tell you how the name Pendergast came up, except that Prendergast or Pendergast is is much more common than Pendergast and. 
Um, so we've used that to uh, to our advantage to make it from a very, very um, limited and very strange family, which is full of madness and murder uh, and all sorts of dark doings in in his past, um, which is which is uh, uh, you know um, attributable only to the Pendergast of the world. The Prendergast, mm-hmm. of course, uh, aren't aren't um, affected. Yeah, my uh, my my wife is actually related to the the ushers, um, infamous for the the fall of House of Usher, uh, fall of the House of Usher, and um, they were actually uh, friends with the uh, with the author. And you know, so there's I, I can I can get behind uh, being around a family with a lot of a lot of generational genetic madness. So that's uh, it really really. Wait, are you, well are you serious? Yeah, yeah. There was an actual Usher family? Yeah, still is, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, so then you understand why she often stops and looks at the front of your house to see if there's a huge crack going from the floor <laughs> to, the, to the roof. Uh, I would understand, too, under the circumstances. Yeah, every, every time the crack appears, we have to examine it thoroughly, you know? That's um, right, yeah. And then, and then uh, you know... Uh, Yes, of course, and then exhume exhume uh, somebody's sister to make sure that she can look at it too, and make sure just to check, you know, get, not, not get another opinion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when you bring up uh, Agent Coldmoon, um, in in verses for the dead, Douglas, uh, I really liked the personal conflicts between Pendergast and Coldmoon, and one of the recurring issues you guys wrote in revolves around camp coffee, which for the benefit of the audience is basically made by boiling coffee grounds for days or weeks and adding more water and grounds only as, as needed. My, my brother-in-law served in the 82nd airborne and claimed to have loved the stuff after four or five days, but I never actually saw him drink it. How did you guys design the interpersonal relationships and conflicts between them and, and come up with something as unique as camp coffee? Well, you know, Pendergast is a terrific snob when mm-hmm. it comes to food and wine and in particular, his espresso coffee. Yes. It has to be just perfect. And here comes Cold Moon, who can't stand espresso coffee. At one point in the book, Pendergast buys him a Starbucks. He says, well, this isn't exactly the best, but it's a lot more drinkable than that stuff you're drinking. Damn sight better, yeah. And Cold Moon takes one sip of the Starbucks, and he pours it out into a snowbank and says, no thanks. So they do have different, uh, they're, they're very different personalities. I mean, Pendergast is very neat. He's uh, fastidious. He's a terrible snob. Cold Moon is messy. Um, and is like, for example, in, in one scene in the book, and I think if you have FBI or law enforcement uh, officers listening to this, they'll get this right away. You know, Cold Moon, takes his, uh, his sidearm, and they're in a crappy motel room in northern Maine, mm-hmm. two beds, and Coldmoon's got all his stuff piled on one bed, and he casually removes his sidearm and puts it on Pendergast's bed. So Pendergast comes in, and he sees this sidearm on his bed. He picks it up, takes it out of the case, starts handling it, and making comments about it. Yes. The golden one is, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you my weapon. 
you, you know better than that. What the hell? And Pendergast looks at him and very coolly says, oh, I'm sorry. I, I assumed that since you put it on my bed, that you were inviting me to examine it. Yes. And a very fine sidearm it is. Uh, and he gives it back to Goldblum. And Goldblum realizes he's just been reprimanded. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a really... Found, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, we found that Camp Coffee was, was a, the perfect image to distill the differences between them, mm-hmm. you know, with Pendergast's fussy uh, Epicureanism and Cold Moon's rather, you know, poor upbringing, uh, and it just distilled everything that was different between them. And neither Doug nor I are strangers to Camp Coffee. So, um, <laughs> perfect. Uh, Doug, I understand we have uh, have New Mexico in common. I, I grew up uh, grew up there, and I understand that you you spent quite a bit of time there in the in recent years. And I, I'm interested to hear about the potential influences that uh, a couple of our local heroes, uh, Tony Hellerman and Detective Chi, might have played in in creating Special Agent Coldman. Well, you know, there's a huge influence in that. I was I'm mean, a fanatical Tony Hellerman reader. His books, um, I read all his books, and I love them. I'm actually very close friends with his daughter, Anne Hillerman, who's a wonderful writer. And I spent uh, many months on the Navajo Indian Reservation. Um, I used to actually speak a little Navajo. So so a lot of that, now Cold Moon is not Navajo, he's Lakota. Well, he's half Lakota, half Italian. His mother was Italian, his dad was Lakota. So he's got, you know, two different uh, colliding uh, histories in him, and uh, which makes him a very interesting character. Um, so, so yes, definitely some of my Native American experience and my friends and what I know has gone went into creating Cold Moon. I mean, one of the things that has always impressed me about Native Americans is their deeply religious and spiritual nature. I mean, you will not meet an atheist Native American. They don't exist. I mean, if they do, I've never yeah. met one. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be possible, but I've never met one, yeah. Right, so so Coldman, so Pendergast, is, his religion is very uncertain. He's supposedly Catholic, but he never goes to church. Whereas Coldman has a very deep spiritual view of life, of people, of the world. And this is another way that the two of them are very different, but actually complement each other. So, yeah, I was. Uh, it was really nice to see the uh, a lot of what you know I viewed from my biased experience as, as a lot of authenticity about Cold Moon and his character. That um, you know, I I tend to shy away in my own writing from things that I know absolutely nothing about, and I I personally wouldn't be brave enough to try to create a cold moon character and, and make it authentic. And you guys did a fantastic job of that. I'm, I think native Americans in general are pretty underrepresented in film and fiction um, beyond being caricatures and stereotypes. And I really, uh, I'm really excited about what the future holds for agent cold moon. And I, I'm, I'm really, uh, really excited to see it. Well, thank you. That, thank that you. means a lot to hear you say that because I found in reading literature, reading novels, that Native Americans are so often portrayed as just one-dimensional stock Mm -hmm. characters, not necessarily bad, but they're not human beings. And that is the one 
thing that Tony Hillerman did so well with his characters is they were absolutely rounded human beings with the foibles that we all have. And we, so we really worked hard on trying to make Cold Moon as fully real as a human being can be. And our readers tell us that they feel we've succeeded in that. And that makes me feel very, very happy. Now, even though Versus for the Dead is the latest in a pretty long series, Lincoln, uh, the book can be read as a standalone. And for readers new to your works, I've heard you two describe this novel as the perfect entry point to the Pendergast series. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I can. Um, partly, I think that's because uh, you mentioned it as a standalone book, and we've 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 had our share of of books that that either um, start as a single novel and end up becoming so so um, hard to handle. They end up being two or three books, uh, you know, a trilogy or something. Or we've had books that rely on. Pendergast family history, or, or you know, uh, people who are, who who um, have a grudge against him, you know, with, in which having read earlier books would have would have helped. But but recently, Doug and I have tried very very hard to try and write a lot a lot of our books in a standalone way, even if they do involve earlier characters. And this seemed the perfect time to do that because not only did it show Pendergast behaving in a very Pendergastian way, but it also put him in a place he wasn't familiar with, you know, in, in Miami, which is, and Florida in general, which is a, an interesting setting. Yes. Um, and uh, one that he'd only, we'd only touched on a little bit before. And it gave him an unusual uh, situation having to deal with a partner um, who was, in his own way, as reserved and quiet and uh, observant as Pendergast was. Um, and the story, you, you mentioned Agatha Christie, um, you know, it gave us a chance to tell a story that even though we were able to work in Pendergast's backstory and his, his peculiarities, you know, they didn't impede the, the progress of the story, you know, um, so many new characters were introduced, Cold Moon, um, the ME, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a variety of, of other people, the, their driver. Um, and, and Doug and I both, we just sort of felt upon finishing it that, that, that although we've written, you know, you know, close to 18 Pendergast novels, this one seemed particularly good, uh, particularly good introduction because not only had the character developed to such a point that we could raise him, not with ease, but, but, but we knew how best to, to sketch him out and what readers needed to know about him. But it was a, an interesting story for both returning readers and new readers. Um, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I can't tell you how pleased I am to hear you say that, that when reading it, you felt echoes of some of the great masters because you know that's music to our ears you know, um, uh, because they're the ones that we, you know, from, from, from Jeffrey Household, uh, you know, um, onward, you know, all the way up to uh, Michael Crichton and, uh, you know, uh, Dennis Lehane, you know, we, we, we doff our hats to the greatest. And um, while we have a very unique style, mm -hmm. um, we turn to try and learn learn from them and and 
So we're pleased to hear that. Yeah, I was I was really very very entertained and very impressed with with the writing. Usually, you know, you don't have both of those experiences at the same time. I think with a lot of authors, um, you know, and especially with this being a a very long running series, once you know, once characters are created in a series, they're there forever until you know you kill them off or, or something else happens. But um, once someone's created in this universe, Douglas, uh, there's um, uh, especially in a popular series like this, can you talk about how you guys go about revisiting characters or bringing old threads into these new works to, to tie them back? Well, we have to be very careful that we don't uh, create a situation where a new reader comes in and picks up one of our books and reads 30 pages and says, whoa, I have no idea what's going on and puts it down. So each book really is self-contained with a very few exceptions. And it's also important when you're bringing a character back in to reintroduce the character, but do it in an original way. I mean, for example, Arthur Conan Doyle, whenever he did a Sherlock Holmes story or novel, he always reintroduced Sherlock Holmes in a very original and, and interesting way. You know, Holmes would, would look at, someone would visit Holmes in his chambers and Holmes would tell that person all about them because he was able to figure out all these things just from looking at the clothing and stains on the boots and all this other stuff. And so we try to do the same thing with Pendergast in each novel. He comes in and in a very unique way, not like other novels, the reader understands who he is and is introduced to him and says, wow, what a eccentric dude that guy is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he dresses in black, He's very pale. He's not albino. He's just very pale. Mm -hmm. And often when he shows up at the crime scene, the cops think he's the undertaker yes. there to take away the body. <laughs> and so Pendergast and so has to flash his FBI badge and, and uh, intimidate with, everybody. With pretty good frequency, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln, I'll address this one directly to you. Um, I'll let you speak for, for Doug, I guess. Uh, most authors have a really tough time writing together and compromising on their creative interest. You guys have had a really successful run as co-authors. What is that co-authoring process like that you're able to to both get put meat on the table and be happy with what everybody else has brought? Yeah, it's I, I, the, the longer we do it, the, the more uh, surprised I am, you know, just because I've seen how rare it is and mm -hmm. um, not just in not just in writing, but in, in, in songwriting or in, you know, screenplay writing. I mean, there are always, you hear about fights and arguments and people storming off. Um, it, I think uh, what, what has made it work is the fact that um, both of us really respect each other. You know, we met as um, I was Doug's editor uh, for his first nonfiction book. And, um, so I respected his writing talents and he respected my editing talents. Um, and uh, I had done a lot of writing on my own just as a kid. And, but, you know, being an English major, I sort of learned, you know, I didn't, it was too, it was intimidating to do it. And being an editor of fiction, the last thing I wanted to do was to see more fiction cross my desk. But watching Doug turn my, 
my uh, chapter outlines into, into full-blown wonderful chapters, you know, it, it reawakened my interest in writing. And so over the course of the first three or four books, we found a, an equilibrium, you know, of um, where one of us would take a sequence or a character um, and the other would, uh, would revise those chapters. And that way, and then I'd run a, you know, literary Zamboni or the whole thing at the sure. end. And so nobody could really easily tell where um, one, it's not like you take chapter one, I'll take chapter, chapter two. That, that, that really wouldn't work. That would be far, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, to, you, you could tell that, that would not, there would be no flow to that. But, um, you know, the, the relationship is organic and it continues to develop to the point where now um, we tend to champion books like, you know, Doug will, will champion one title, which simply means he, he, he writes the, the, the lion's share of, of the first draft and I will write the, the a subplot or I'll go back and I'll rewrite the beginning. Um, and uh, because we've learned so much from each other's either writing or editing, um, you know, it's, it's become really uh, uh, a, a very smooth process. I mean, there's a hell, a hell of a lot of work goes into developing the story you know i mean the amount of time that goes we go back and forth with ideas and and hashing out and brainstorming you know and starting over again and getting the story right is often the hardest part because with two of us working on the story you 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 know you said earlier you don't like writing about something you don't know about and that's that's true for for us or almost any any writer who you know has, has got some sense of uh you know, keeping his ego in check. Um, and with, with two of us, we have to double the number of locales and, and specializations and, and people we know. And so it really helps there. And, and finally, the thing that really helps is the fact that, that we, 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 we don't have any ego when it comes to each other. Um, wow. You know, um, we, have, we have ego enough to write a, a Native American character even though we don't are Native American and just hope that it works out. But, um, and thank you for your, your kind words. You know, we, we are very pleased with how Goldblum turned out and he will be back again in the very near future. Um, but you know, when Doug tears apart something of mine, I, 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 I take it, you know, I, I, after cursing him out roundly, I, you know, I take his point, you know, and, 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 and the same thing happens with him. Um, and we've been doing it so long that we just, we, we trust each other's taste and we have great faith in each other and, you know, we respect each other's intelligence and, and uh, we read the same kind of books. And, um, you know, it, it works out best because we, we've learned that just the way that, that um, it, has to, it has to be. And we, initially we had some arguments and, you know, sure. even some, swearing sessions but um uh and the last thing i would say is that we've also written individual books you know books on our own so we know what it's like to write books with nobody there to help or help you help help make a decision about which direction the book should go or if you get stuck you know how to get out of this pit that you've dug yourself into sure. so we've grown to appreciate the fact that having a writing partner that we 
we we respect and and feel close to and have a lot of shared experience with really helps um, yeah it really sounds like a professional marriage you know the uh the the effort and the the compromise that must go into this in some ways it's it's better than a marriage well, no i don't want to <laughs> that sounds bad <laughs> i take that back but but let's say it's a marriage without any of the very few of the negative aspects, you know, because I can always walk away from him for a couple of days, you know, and uh, vice versa. Right, Doug? I mean, that's right. Yeah. 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 Put, please put your foot in your mouth too. So I'm not the only one here. Who's just, <laughs> no, I'm just sitting here listening to you put both feet in. Full, full yeah. <laughs> well, in all fairness, hopefully to you, you know what I mean when I when I say that. Uh, oh, certainly. Yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll give give Doug a chance to do the same thing. But it, you brought it up a little bit, Lincoln, in there about um, about writing and about Cold Moon and some some of the the work on the endings, or um, yeah. But uh, James Patterson said that he writes down all the possibilities for how his book is going to end, and then dismisses them one by one until he has the one that's both plausible and surprising. Um, Versus for the Dead, this ending for me uh, as a reader and a pretty veteran investigator was a genuine surprise. I didn't see the framework of this particular ending coming, and for a few minutes before the reveal, I actually flipped back through some pages to make sure I hadn't got my breadcrumbs right. Um, so w with all that in mind, Doug, can you talk about how you guys go about crafting your plots and the surprises which seem so natural in hindsight for the readers? We place great stock in surprising the reader at the end. We think that that twist at the end, that thing that just totally knocks the reader back mm -hmm. and makes them you know, feel, wow, I didn't see that coming, is a really important part of our books. But it has to be done very carefully. You can't just like pull something out of left field and spring it on the reader. When that twist occurs, the reader has to look at it and say, oh, I should have seen that coming. So with, normally we plan our endings with great care so that they fit. You know, there's nothing worse than reading a thriller and thinking it's a wonderful book until you get to the end, and then the whole thing falls apart and all these huge holes and logic show up and you're like, now wait a minute. So, so, so Lincoln and I are very meticulous in our planning. But this book, Verses for the Dead, was very unusual in that when it was, wasn't until we were about two-thirds of the way through the book that we realized that we were going to have a different ending than what we've been planning. And it was wow. going to be just a huge surprise. And it was going to take a little bit of backfilling, but we had a character who was just going to really surprise the reader, not only the bad guy, but the serial killer in the end even though he's a very sick, twisted, and mixed up individual, suddenly acquires a certain level of sympathy from the reader. Yeah, humanity. And, yeah. and from Pendergast, who has insight into his psychology mm -hmm. and understands where he was coming from. Now, obviously, we can't justify in any way a person who serially murders people. But yes. one can understand it. And so many serial killers in novels are just these horrible, evil people that you don't 
been really opaque. You can't understand them and they have no redeeming value. Well, we wanted to create a villain who had some redeeming value. And we also wanted to create a bad guy who seems to be a good guy, but surprises the hell out of the reader at the end that he's the bad guy, but then the logic for it is impeccable. You go yes. back and you read through it and you realize, uh, okay, now I see what's happening here. So, Gavin, first, if I could just, I'm sorry, go ahead. Doug. No, no, go ahead, Link, please. After you, my dear Alphonse. <laughs> Gavin, I was just going to re reference what you said about, about you know, in hindsight, it, it, you know, the breadcrumb trail seems obvious. You know, that's, that's really one of the hardest things to do um, is to have the reader get to the end and, and say, oh, well, of course I should have seen that coming. That's, that's only natural. The plot would have worked out that way. You know, it's mm -hmm. here, here I see this and here I see that. And, but of course it, it isn't obvious at all. And that's, it's the hardest thing to do in many ways is to make it seem effortless and make it seem that that's the direction we were sort of leading with the whole way. Um, and so when that, when that works, it's, we're very happy, you know, um, and one of the things that we're, we're, we're proud of stuff when that, when, when one of our books does that successfully. So I'm having you stop and look back and make sure that we put the breadcrumbs in right. Now, I, I wish uh, I could make sure I read it right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had made a mistake and, you know, oh. I was impressed. Either way, it's music to our ears because it, you know, it shows that we were doing our jobs. Now, on on that note, and in, in from an, uh, a reality of, of of investigations, right? So when when we're um, you know real life detectives are investigating a, a particular path, right? You're always following the evidence, and much like what happens with in this book, um, you go down a certain path and you take this evidence as long as it leads you, and then suddenly you find something that makes you look suddenly to the left and you see this effectively this chasm, this other evidence trail that you couldn't see until you got to that point. And so in, in a way that very closely mirrored my, um, my professional experience in, in these kind of investigations and inquiries. And it was really refreshing to, to have that element of surprise, even, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so in other words, you, you found that, you would you would you would do an investigation and even if your initial your initial pathway didn't lead quite in the direction you, you expected somehow the the right answer was sort of following along um, in a parallel path that you eventually were led to is that right is that right yeah yeah eventually you know so you're following this yeah this this one trail and as as you're progressing down this down this trail you eventually come to this intersection where you learn this piece of data through this other path that until that moment, you didn't realize this other path existed to get to the same place. And then, you know, you realize you're, you're, you're onto the truth of the thing. Um, so it, it, that felt very realistic. Um, <laughs> now there's um, a, a moment. There's a couple things that I really enjoy as, as a reader. Um, one of them is when the author reveals the, uh, the title within the book and the, the reason for the title, the rationale for it. And another is when authors kind of taply gen on that, uh, gently tap on that fourth wall that, you know, it, I feel like they're speaking directly to me as the reader. And there's a brief moment in verses for the dead when 
uh, Pendergast, I think he's talking to Cold Moon, um, but even though he's talking to this other character, it felt like the line was clearly intended for me. And I, I'm going to take the liberty of quoting these two sentences here because I loved it so much, especially as a writer. These revelations don't switch on like a light bulb. That's for mystery novels. I absolutely loved that. And, you know, felt like that was a nice reminder for me as the reader that, you know, hey, you know, this is this is a little bit more reality and not just, you know, made up that can't happen like it does in the real world. Um, Lincoln, from, from a craft perspective, how do you manage to balance reader and genre expectations against the reality of crime fighting? Uh, that's a very good question that I don't think we've, either one of us have been asked that before, um, in, that I can recall. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to do because you have to strike a balance between, you know, I'm, what I, what I know and admitting my, my knowledge is limited to, to research and, 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 and friends and acquaintances who were in law enforcement mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of. I wouldn't call it boring, but there's a lot of paperwork and slogging yes. and you know, following various paths and tedium, you know, and occasionally punctuated by moments of terror and, yes. and you know, excitement. Um, and the, and the, the task for a writer is to, is to convey both of those, um, obviously, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a small amount of time. And so, for example, in this book, we were able to sketch out Pendergast's character um, uh, very, very quickly by using the device of, of a new, his new boss who'd, who'd heard about him, but didn't know him. And he, he, he had planned to meet him in a way that would put him at a disadvantage and pending out turn the tables. And just showing that happened was enough to, to understand their relationship and what it would be like to work in that kind of a situation. And, uh, and, um, so, you know, it's, what Doug and I do is we try and use the difficulties that we assume are part and parcel of, of a law enforcement uh, officer's uh, or agent's job to obfuscate um, to our own advantage the truth of the story, if that makes any sense. You know, yes. um, the, the difficult, the, 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 the wrong paths that we see somebody going down and the disappointment that they feel you know, at the same time, we're using that to lay the proper path um, at the same time, even though hopefully nobody else can see us doing that. So, you know, it, it really is, a, it's, it's really, um, we're killing two birds with one stone um, mm -hmm. by doing it that way. Douglas, God forbid it should happen, but if you were found murdered tomorrow morning, would you want Pendergast or Cold Moon to work the case? You only get one. Oh boy, that's a that's a cool question. Uh, I think I'd like Pendergast to work the case because I'd like to be fairly certain that the perp would end up dead. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you still take the same choice knowing that that meant Cold Moon had to work Lincoln's murder? Oh dear. Well, if, if Lincoln was murdered, I'd be a prime suspect. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, I would hope that a very, well, if I'd done it, I'd hope that there'd be a very poor yes. agent in the case, but if I didn't do it, I'd hope that there'd be a very good agent 
working on the case. So Cold Moon being a very good agent, I'd say, yeah, put him on the case because I'd want him to uh, absolve me of responsibility as quickly as possible. Perfect. Lincoln, who would you take? Uh, I would... Um... I would want uh, uh, I would want, definitely want Pendergast to work my case because because by as much of respect as I have for Cold Mood, Pendergast um, has more experience and I can see him um, uh, get into the end of the case better. And if if Doug were to be found dead tomorrow, you know it it would. It it would it would really sting for a, an hour or two, but then I'd get over it, you know. And so <laughs> Coleman screwed it up, you know, as a as a run of the amateurs, you know, FBI that, you know, I'd muddle through. <laughs> yeah, so somehow would manage to carry on. Yes. No, thanks a lot. Somehow I managed to carry on. So with you know, with all the copyrights, of course, in my name and um, the uh, you know the the, the Pendergast the fan franchise. Uh, going strong for the next 30 years um, as a, a Lincoln child book. No, of course, that's a joke. Um, yes. Doug, I'd be lost without Doug. And, um, and uh, were, he to, were he to die tomorrow, um, uh, I, I think you would see, well, I don't know. I think there'd be a, I'd be probably in rehab within a couple of months. So, <laughs> Yeah, uh, very understandable. Um, Last couple questions. Douglas, what would you most like readers to take away from your writing? Well, I think first of all, the first job of a writer is to entertain. And our books, above all, have to be absolutely cracking good entertainment. You know, the pacing has to be swift. They're the kind of books that you have to pick up and you just can't put them down and you're reading all night long. The biggest compliments we get are from people who say, I hate you guys, you're ruining my marriage. I'm, I'm about to get fired at work. I haven't been able to sleep for three days because of your books. And you know, we, we love to hear that sort of thing. So I guess entertainment is the first thing. But the second thing is uh, real characters, not cardboard characters, but really complex, real human beings caught in extreme circumstances. You know, our novels are thrillers. They're not a bunch of, of people standing around sipping martinis. Yes. So, uh, so, so they're about people, ordinary people in extreme situations. And that's the second thing that I think people would take away from our books is how do people, ordinary people, how do they behave? How do they deal with, with murder, with serial killing, with, with, disaster and that sort of thing. These are questions that we like to explore in our books. I guess those are the, those are the things that we would like readers to take away from our books, as well as good ideas, as well as a sense of morality, of ethics, sure. of uh, uh, respect for law enforcement as well. Um, that, those are things we hope also people take away. Well, I selfishly appreciate the last one. <laughs> Lincoln, who's, who's your favorite fictional detective in your favorite crime show? Oh, my God. Um, my favorite fictional detective is uh, um, somebody that probably no one has heard of here, 
and I can't remember his name. I think it's Inspector Holiday. He was played by Alastair Sim in the the uh, very uh, hard to find British movie Green for Danger, um, which was based on a book written in the forties. You can find it on DVD on the Criterion Collection. He was he was a cynical, you know, well-read, erudite person who didn't take his job too seriously. And um, he was definitely a model for uh, for, for for Pendergast um, in terms of how he how he played outside the system and and uh, yet was incredibly intelligent and 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 smart. Um, now, did you ask me? My I'm sorry. The question was favorite oh, uh, yeah, and the favorite and, yeah favorite fictional detective and crime. Oh, show. TV show. Yeah. Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren. Yeah, hands down. Yes, she's a fantastic actress. I greatly appreciate you guys making time to sit down and uh, and chat with me. Thankfully, no attorneys needed today. And as far as I know, nobody's getting murdered. So that's all positive. Thanks again to international bestselling authors Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child for making time to join me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.